Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. We bring you the very best recorded panels, workshops, and seminars concerning role-playing game design and publishing. This has been made possible by the generous contributions of the panel speakers and Double Exposure with their leading game design convention, Metatopia. Episode 98, 10 More Ways to Make Your Rulebook Awesome. Recorded at Metatopia 2015. Presented by Joshua Yearsley. Sure. Will the slide presentation be available to us after today, or should it take a while? Yeah, uh, I will put the slides online, um, along with some basic notes on, like, what I would say in each slide, so... Of course. Where would we go to find those? Uh, that will be on my website, which will be at the end of this presentation. I'm trying to make this as large as possible. Well, you can go over there. Oh, she mentioned the uh, recording mode as well. Sorry? The recording mode yep. as well. All right. Now, with all the technical <coughs> difficulties out of the way. Uh, I'd like to thank you all for coming. Uh, my name is Joshua Yearsley. I'm an editor at Evil Hat Productions, and I'm also a freelance editor for uh, many independent publishers and bigger publishers alike. And so today what I'm going to tell you about is 10 more ways to make your rulebook awesome. So I gave this presentation last year. I gave 10 best practices for designing rulebooks. Um, and so a little bit of this is going to build off of it, but I've tried to make this as uh, self-contained as possible and explain kind of where, what I'm talking about when I try to build on some earlier best practices. Um, so it's all new. It's approved. It's maybe actually only eight things because I really, really wanted to talk about some things a lot. It's 100 slides, but you shouldn't worry. Um, so we shall begin. Um I'm going to go, let's see, this, so we'll get my, realize I don't want to make you look in two different directions, so I will do this, yeah, there we go, alright, uh, and this is what I talked about in my last presentation, and again, uh, there will be a link at the end where you can find all of these topics uh, along with notes about what I said in the slides. So this is me. Uh, if you don't recognize me, it's because I got rid of that. <laughs> um, and I'm going to talk about two <coughs> big things in this presentation. The first thing is I'm going to talk about the structure of the rulebook. So kind of looking at the big picture, how you organize the content of the whole rulebook in a way that makes sense. Uh, and then I'm going to... Uh, go down to the more nitty-gritty, talk about the individual text, uh, individual sections, individual sentences, and show you how you can make that as readable and understandable as possible. Uh, one thing that has been really great over the last year, Fantasy Flight's finally making good rule books. Woo! <laughs> Fantasy Flight, uh, for those of you who don't know, is a board game uh, publisher. Uh, they have had a long history of really bad rule books, but um, you should check out some of their more recent titles. They're doing a really good job now really good case studies on how to do good rule books. And so for some of this, I'm going to be evangelizing them a little bit. 
Uh, but enough of that, let's get on to the meat of this. So, first thing I'm going to be talking about is how to portion your rules in a way that makes sense to the reader. So, uh, there's this problem in games of this thing called, what I like to call, rules ease. Uh, and it's things like this. In all cases, once tourists have been awarded and then placed during the executive phase, all tourist markers remain, blah, 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 blah. You get the point. They're trying to explain this complicated process in a way that is as all-inclusive as possible. They're trying to give you all of the edge cases. They're trying to give you all of the information they think you want to need. They think that you need it once. Um, and ultimately, it just turns into something like this, just an unreadable mess. And so that's what I like to call rule seats. So you're yes. saying not hire a government employee to write your thoughts. <laughs> yes, maybe. <yeah. laughs> um, and one thing that I argued uh, in my last presentation that you do not want to cover every edge case, every question, every gray area, and every quibble in your rules. The thing that you always, always want to start with, uh, uh, and that is because it makes the essentials harder to grasp. And because of that, you want to start with a very simple, solid, and intuitive foundation. You want to give your core rules in the simplest language possible to start, as opposed to trying to include everything that you need to know about a particular action, or a particular phase, or a particular component. And what I'm going to talk about in this presentation is how to split your rulebook into a learn-to-play rulebook, and how to do that effectively so that you can present a simple, solid, and intuitive foundation. Uh, and so some people um, are trying to do this now. It is becoming more and more common in recent, recent years. Some people have failed, some have succeeded, and so I'm going to show you some of the cases where it works, some of the cases where it doesn't work, and try and give you uh, an idea of how you can make it work for your game. Uh, so if your book is small, you know, 12 pages might not be necessary, but as you go up in size, uh, once you hit 24 or 36 pages, I would absolutely, absolutely recommend splitting because uh, your reader isn't going to know when to stop eating those rules. They're going to take a look at your rule book and go, oh, it's 36 pages. Uh, I'm reading through these rules, I'm reading through these rules. And unless you portion your rules in ways by splitting up a learn to play and a reference guide, they're just going to eat all of those rules and come out of it feeling stuffed and unsure of what, how to play the game. Uh, and you want to get it to the table as soon as possible. Uh, so having a short and simple learn to play is how you're going to do that. So I'm going to make a case for these learn to, learn to play rule books. The first thing that um, splitting off the learn to play rule book lets you do is it lets you signal importance of, uh, of the rules. So in a rule set, you have all these different things that you're trying to convey. You're trying to convey your mechanics. You're trying to convey maybe some strategy and some tips, uh, frequently asked questions for edge cases, and you uh, might want to provide some reference material. Say, if you have a whole bunch of cards and you need to uh, describe the, in more specific detail what those cards do beyond what you can fit on the card. These are all different types of information in a rulebook, and I want to emphasize that. Your, your rulebook doesn't have a singular type of information that you're giving throughout it. You're giving all these different types. And so you need to signal 
what the what the reader needs to know now to understand the core game. So you can use different types of elements in your rulebook to signal what's important. So you have different tools. You have your body text. You have your sidebars. You have your examples. And those tools can be used to uh, describe <coughs> different types of information. So your body text, that is where you're going to stick your most important rules. You're not going to stick your super important rules in your sidebars, and you're certainly not going to put them in your examples. So the reader is naturally drawn to, to associate body text with more important rules, and they will learn that sidebars and examples uh, are where more edge cases and uh, secondary rules go. Uh, however, if you have a big rule book, uh, that's not enough in my opinion. You're trying to cover the spectrum of rules. Common and uncommon rules can either be critical or non-critical. And so if you say have like an uncommon critical rule and it might be too much to like place in your body, it's like, oh, I don't want to put every edge case. But if it's critical to the game running, if say, if you don't understand it, your game just screeches to a halt, well, then where exactly do you put it? Do you put it in body? Do you put it in sidebar? Where do you put it? And so by making it learn to play, you can immediately cut out half of everything that you need to write down. You focus on only the critical content uh, in the learn to play, and you work off of that. And then when you get to the rules reference, that can be all-inclusive. You can include everything in the rules reference. And what you do not want to do, you never want to make the rules reference non-inclusive. You want every single rule in your rules reference. I've seen cases where a publisher will make a rules reference or a full, full rule set, and they don't put all the rules in the rules reference. It seems silly, but I've seen it happen many times. Um, so absolutely avoid that. And you can even portion rules out in finer detail in your learn to play. So in some cases, you can have a basic rule set, the core, uh, the core loop of your game, and then you can say, okay, stop. You're going to play a basic game. We're going we're gonna to go through a short game. Uh, and then after that, we can introduce additional rules for the full game. Or you can say something like, okay, uh, the basic rules are the rules that you need to know to start playing. And then in the additional rules, we'll have these little nuggets of like, okay, when you encounter this, like, here's just that little bit extra that you need to know to fully understand it. As I said before, you want to get people to the table as quickly as possible. And by portioning the rules like this, you can signal what is critically important and common, say, in the basic rules, or, criti or critically important and less common, which you can portion in the additional rules. The less things that your reader has to try to cram into his or her head at once when they get it to the table, uh, the easier the skeleton of that game becomes to understand, which you can then add the meat to in the, in the additional rules. So you can, you can portion these rules uh, in many different ways. Just as an example, so say you have a bunch of cards in your game. Uh, in the basic rules, you can say, okay, these cards exist. Uh, cards generally are used uh, at these times in the game and for these purposes. 
Um, that gives you an idea of how these components integrate into play. That gives you an idea of what their uses are. Um, and then if you need every detail on how these cards are constructed, you can get the rest of that information just you know, flip over uh, to the additional rules and you can give, say, a full detailed page spread on card layout. What that does is it avoids the information overload of, okay, we're on page three and we're gonna talk about these cards now. And here's a whole page on those cards. Unless every single piece of that information is necessary to understand the core rules of the game, you're not gonna wanna stick that in the beginning. You'll want to, you'll want to give that a little bit later on. And by creating an express, explicit stopping point, it's much easier to understand that the meteor stuff uh, is, okay, it's in this half of the book. Rather than, you can create sections and say, okay, refer to later section for card details. But if you create an express stop sign or some sort of split, it's easier to uh, remember that if you need more information, you can just go to the other side. Uh, and then once you get to the rules reference, you can dig down even deeper. Uh, you can talk about how, say, different cards interact. Uh, if there are rules exceptions, what those might be. Uh, and if you want to give big, big examples, that's, that's a perfectly fine place in a rules reference. You don't necessarily need to put that in a learn to play. Oftentimes, when we give examples, we want to give things that are as comprehensive as possible, uh, that give that show naturally these edge cases. So it says player A is doing this, player B is doing this, and whoop, we have an edge case or a tiebreaker or something like that. And because we want to integrate all of these rules, exceptions, and interactions and edge cases, big, long, meaty examples, I would argue are uh, oftentimes better in the rules reference. But of course, this is just a model. This that model that I described, it might not work exactly correctly for your rulebook. You will have to play with it. This is not a one and done, cut and dry kind of thing that you can apply to every rulebook. Um, but I I definitely advocate for giving that a shot and then working from there to see what works for your game. Um, and. But one thing that I will explicitly mention that you should never ever do is have references in the learn to play to the rules reference or in reverse. The reason that is, is because when your player is learning to play, you don't want to ever tempt them to go over to the rules reference. The rules reference is meant to be a, you have already played, or something has come up in play where you don't know what's going on, you want the rules reference to be a standalone document wholly. You do not want to encourage players to read the learn to play and then try to read through the whole rules reference because that essentially defeats the purpose of it. You want the rules reference to be a scalpel. You want it to be, okay, I don't understand this specific thing and there's this weird interaction, I don't know what's going on. You go to the rule reference to figure out that little nitpick. You don't want to read all of the little nitpicks when you're going through the learn to play. Um, next, what splitting uh, your learn to play and rules reference lets you do is it lets you create a really robust, really easy to use index. 
Um, the reason that this is is because a learn to play is a narrative and conceptual read of the rules. While the rules reference is a complete and linked and cross, ideally linked and cross referenced uh, rule set, which if you try to combine these, these are tugging against each other. You, it is very difficult <coughs> to create something that is narrative, but also very rigidly structured in a particular order. Um, it is also difficult to talk about things conceptually. Uh, it, it, it's also a war between talking about something conceptually uh, and being absolutely complete about it. So uh, by splitting it, you let those two books have their individual strengths. And so when it comes to the index, um, you know, indexes are alphabetically ordered. That's, you know, that's the way that we understand them. We know that B comes after A, and so on. And so that's how indexes are naturally ordered. And if you have a book that is just a rules reference, what you can do is you can split every single topic into the alphabetical order. So if you find a card that's called, like, Great Strength, you're like, oh, I don't know what's going on here. You just flip the G in your rules reference. It'll say, this is what we're talking about. Great Strength is a Hunter event card. What it does, you can give bullet points on, okay, here are the, here's what it does. Here are the edge cases if you have them. Here are the interactions. Here's the kind of finer points. And then if you can't find what you're looking for, you can just give a, okay, here are the related topics. So by splitting up, it makes it very easy for you to create a robust uh, index in a completely <coughs> alphabetical format. And so that's one great advantage. Um, one thing that I want to caution on, on learn to plays and tutorials, is that there's kind of two ways of, of doing tutorials. The first way is that you give some tutorial text, like, oh, hi, we're going to play a game. Uh, this game is about blah. First do these things. Oh, and then look at these rules. Understand these rules. And then go back to some more tutorial text. It's like, okay, well, this has happened, so now we're going to go to the next phase in the game and talk about that. So basically what you're doing is you're saying, um, I am going to guide you through, but while I'm guiding you through, I need you to flip over a few pages, understand these rules, and then you can come back to the tutorial text. I've seen this. I've seen this happen a lot. Do not do this. Do not have the reader cross-reference rules as you're trying to lead them through the process. That's just, it's just bad for comprehensibility. You're going to lose your place. You're not going to understand uh, you're, you're, you're going to lose your place both in the text and in terms of where you are in the game flow. So if it's like, okay, we're going to go through an example action phase right now. Please read the action phase rules first to understand what's going on. Uh, that's just going to confuse your reader. The better way is, as I said before, teach the basic game, give them the core rules, and then just have them run it. You... As long as your basic rules are written in a concise enough way that they can rock that, then run a run a tutorial game rather than cross-referencing uh, a walkthrough with rules text itself. The uh, dangerous thing here, though, is uh, if you do do a basic game 
the players might only get a piece of the pie, and they might not uh, they might not understand and appreciate the strategies and the depths of your whole game. So again, this you might not even want to do a tutorial depending on how your game is designed. But if it's simple enough, uh, while also being deep enough that a basic game will give your players a good idea of how to play it, then that's something to consider. <coughs> uh, so now I'm going to move on from kind of the broader structural stuff uh, to some specific tips on how to write rules text. Again, I gave a, a, a lot of these kinds of tips in my last presentation, but these are some more that are still very important to designing your rules text. But I would encourage you to look at the last presentation for, for more on this. Uh, so I'm going to talk about using appropriate sentence types for different kinds of, kinds of rules. And what I mean by sentence types. So there are four sentence types in, in English. There's declarative, imperative, and then uh, there's also... Uh, interrogative and exclamatory. I'm just going to talk about these two types uh, because they're the only types that are really relevant to, uh, to rules. Uh, and these two types essentially state the function of the sentence. So in a declarative sentence, what you're doing is you're declaring something. You're saying that something is or something happens uh, you're, you're just stating a fact, essentially. Uh, whereas imperative is a direct uh, command, so do this. Uh, you are, you are, you are uh, saying it is imperative for you to do this. You are saying, uh, rather than something is, you are saying do this. So that's the basic difference between those two types of sentences. Um, and those two sentences actually are, that is a declarative sentence, so this happens, and do this is an imperative sentence, so those are just two simple examples. And oftentimes, switching from a declarative sentence uh, structure to an imperative sentence structure is going to make your rules much less wordy, and I'm going to give you some examples of that. So uh, there's a game called Chaos in the Old World, I love it. Um, it is an example of an old fantasy flight game that has really bad rules though, so I'm going to drag on it a little bit. Um, so in this case, uh, the rules are saying to play a chaos card, a specific type of card in this game, a player simply does the following. So a player does, that's a statement. It's just saying a player does this. So it's a declarative sentence. Chooses a card from his hand of chaos cards, pays the selected card's cost, and then places the card and blah, 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 blah. And so what we can do is we can switch from a declarative sentence structure to an imperative sentence structure. So the way that we do that is we look at our subject, player, and then our verb, does, and then we change that from a declarative to an imperative. So you can say, to play a chaos card, you choose a card, you pay the selected card's cost, you place the card. So immediately, you're already cutting out uh, a player, uh, and you're making it a more direct statement that uh, when you do this, you just choose add <coughs> in place. You're removing that kind of separation between what you're doing uh, and what it's stating. Uh, if you use declarative, 
saying chooses, pays, places, that is inherently, it's, I mean, it's a third person sentence and it's removing your understanding of the rules from what you're actually doing. And if it's you who's doing this, uh, then you can just say you. And you can even take the you out. Um, so in that way, you can cut out some of those extraneous, uh, extraneous words in the rules and make it a bit uh, simpler to understand. The other advantage um, that uh, it may it may not be of uh, interest to some of you, but it might be of interest to others, is that it helps you uh, in creating more bias-free language. So rather than struggling with like, okay, should I use he, she, they, the, you know, how how do I get around this thorny issue? If you're using a second person, you're basically just saying you do this, you do that, and that doesn't even become an issue. So if that's important to you, then that's another advantage of using the imperative structure. But does this mean that imperative is good and declarative is bad? Uh, that's not what I'm saying. <coughs> so the first, the first um, advantage of declarative is if you have different kinds of players doing things. So if you have a cat player and a dog player and they have fundamentally different actions they can take, for example, this is a good uh, place where declarative can be used. Uh, so here, for example, this game is Fury of Dracula, and some players are Dracula. One player is Dracula, and some players are the hunters. And so right in the beginning of this rulebook, it says, when playing Fury of Dracula, each player controls one character, one of the hunters or Dracula. When a rule or effect refers to either a hunter or Dracula, it is referring to both the player and the character. So in this game... Uh, as it goes through the rules, it will say a hunter does this or Dracula does this, and that is specifically because you have different player types. So if you have different types of players doing different things, using declarative can really, really clear that up. The other uh, great place for declarative uh, is if people are doing things simultaneously. Uh, so if you're saying that any player can do something, or if everybody's doing something at once, those are both great places to use imperative, uh, declaratives um, to, to <laughs> clarify exactly who can do something in a specific time. Uh, next, I want to talk a little bit about chunking concepts. Uh, so I use the word chunk very um, specifically because the human brain, when we're uh, talking about short-term or working memory, can only hold so much in it at once before you essentially have to move on to the next concept. The so-called magic number of individual little bits of information you can hold is about seven, five to seven. And that could be words, that could be strings of numbers in a telephone number, but the human brain only has a specific working capacity. And where that becomes important is uh, when you're describing things to do or describing rules, one way to make it a lot easier to understand what you're talking about is to ta is to just give a very basic summary of what you're going to do. So, for example, set influence track. Don't just say, place the influence marker on space zero of the influence track. If you just give a little tiny digestible chunk saying what you're going to talk about, that makes it a lot easier to both understand and then also reference later. Um, the second thing that I will point out uh, here is that uh, 
it becomes a lot easier to integrate those chunks if you have all of the uh, all all of the graphical descriptions of what you're working with there with you. So if you're talking about say an influence marker, don't just leave it back on the components page. In that case, whenever you talk about something new, they're all your readers are always going to be flipping back. If there is a nice space to put something, put the graphic there. This is an example of a really badly chunked rulebook. Um, the top is talking about preparing a deck, uh, and the uh, bottom is talking about deployments, so it doesn't give you an idea of what you're doing, as opposed to the specific the specifics place game board, set influence track, set time track. It is giving you this list of components, it isn't telling you anything about them, and it doesn't really tell you anywhere in the rulebook exactly what you're supposed to do with these. Um, so the first problem is that the titles don't tell you what they're what you're doing exactly. They're what are called nominalized titles, where you're converting a verb to a noun rather than you say uh, separate deck, shuffle event cards. You're saying deck preparation, which is a very vague way of telling the reader what they're supposed to do. Standard deployment is even vaguer. And they're chunked. The first one is chunked okay, but the second one is chunked badly. And the reason that it's chunked badly is because in this game, all of these different types of markers that it's listing are all fundamentally different. They're being placed on different parts of the board. You are uh, doing different things with them in play. It is making no distinction between these things. Even though they're all things that you're placing on the board, they're all things that you're placing in different ways in different places that are used for different purposes. So that's an example of chunking badly. Uh, going to talk about separating actions and concepts. So kind of going back to Fear of Dracula, this is, an ex uh, this is a little bit of rules text from that. So it's talking about a move action. So it's saying when a hunter performs a move action, he moves his figure onto the board to indicate his new location, which must either be a city or a sea zone. See what are locations. So what this is saying is this is what you do on a move action, and that's really all the information you need to know to understand what you do on a move action. Then, immediately after, it gives you a chunk in a nice uh, sidebar that says what are locations, and it's a little blurry, so don't try to read it. But basically what it's doing is this is giving you the conceptual information that you need to know understand what are locations. It gives you nothing about what you're doing. It doesn't tell you to do anything. It merely describes a particular part of the game. And that boundary between doing things and understanding things is very important to distinguish in the rules themselves. Um, that's where graphic design can be very helpful because you can put something in uh, a, a sidebar, for example, uh, you can distinguish it in some way from your, your, you can distinguish your concepts from your actions, and in that way you can clue the player into, okay, to understand what's going on, I need to read these parts. To understand the deeper stuff, I need to read these parts. And this is important because in these two things you're giving fundamentally different information. In the do text and the concept text, 
So in, for the move action, you're talking specifically about the mechanic. You're saying, this is the mechanic, this is what you do. Whereas what are locations, you're purely talking about definitions and concepts. You're giving nothing about what you're supposed to do. So when would be a good time to integrate these kinds of things, and when would it be better to split them? Uh, well, the first uh, case is the more concept that is related to a specific action, the, the ratio, the, the more concept to action there is, the more likely it is that you're going to want to split them off. So if you have this tiny little action, this little move action, and then all this other information about locations or whatever else, uh, that that's a that's a uh, way for you to tell whether you should integrate those or split them. If it's just like a little bit of concept along with there, you've probably got a way with putting it uh, in there so that you're not constantly switching back and forth between like, okay, action, concept, action, concept, action, concept. But if it gets bigger, you're probably going to want to split it off. The other thing is if a single concept applies to lots of different actions. So um, lo if locations are useful for moving, but it's also something that you might be searching in or something like that, that's another case where you're definitely going to want to split them off. Uh, and my eighth, and this is actually going to be my final one, as I promised in the beginning, um, I want to talk about defining some golden rules. Uh, so let's say that you have something in your game that says you can do X. Uh, and then say it's a card. You play this and it's like you can do this thing. Uh, and then someone else plays a card that says you can't do X. You can't do that same thing. Uh, unless that uh, the budding heads of those two concepts are resolved in the rules, there's going to be no intuitive way to understand which of these takes precedence. So you need to describe in your rules these really, really, really low-level uh, interactions. And an example of how you might uh, fix this, uh, so this is an interactive problem, uh, an example of how you might fix this is by writing, if a card uses the word cannot, that effect is absolute. So this is what this is saying is, if you ever see cannot, that is always going to be the top tier thing. It can never be overridden. It doesn't matter what the other cards say. So by defining these really, really low-level definitions of even individual words, um, that can clear up a whole lot of edge cases um, where a whole frequently asked questions page would say, okay, when this card interacts with this card, this card overrides, blah, blah, blah. You can fix a lot of those problems just by defining these golden rules. So take a look at your edge cases, see if your edge cases have anything in common, and then if they, if you find that a lot of your edge cases do have something in common, you can write a golden rule about that, just stick it in your reference, and that handles a lot of issues at once. <laughs> uh, and so by better defining it, by giving these golden rules at the definitions level, you can uh, uh, create many fewer problems when mechanics start interacting. And that's my presentation. Um, my website is there, my Twitter handle, my email. Uh, I'll leave this up. The um, URL for the first presentation is up there as well. Um, and I will also be posting this uh, presentation on my website. My uh, header just has a link to my blog, and it'll be essentially the top post uh, on that. Any questions?
I'll give you a moment to write stuff down. Uh, the obvious versus this is some good examples versus bad examples. Of uh, rule books? Or just yeah, more exhaust, uh, exhausting examples. Um, sorry, sorry. There's <laughs> more exhausting examples to... Sure. Um, there actually isn't right now, but um, that would be a good thing for me to put on my blog. I will uh, give... Yeah, I'll put up a list of uh, some good rulebook examples and bad rulebook examples up on there. Um, as I said earlier, Fantasy Flight has been doing a really, really great job recently, so Imperial Assault... Fury of Dracula, basically anything that they've released in maybe the past year uh, are really good examples. Um, another uh, really great example is Roll for the Galaxy. Um, they do one thing that's really nice in there. It's by... Um, uh, by um, I completely forgotten, but um, uh, Roll for the Galaxy, one thing that's great that they do in there is they, as they're talking about their rules, they have uh, a graphical example of everything they're doing like right by them, and so that's a, that's another great way that you can make the rules easier to understand. So I'd recommend taking a look at that rule book for some more uh, as another good example. <coughs> yes. Uh, for a shorter rule book, like let's say maybe like fourteen pages or so, sure. how do you feel about uh, indexes that that reference into a more tutorial esque kind of thing? So, so are are so you're making one book? Yeah. Uh, okay. Right well, now I am, but this presentation. So um, okay, so you you have. Yeah, I mean, if you if you have an index in the back of your book, sure, it's it's totally fine to have an index if you don't have everything in alphabetical order. Like indexes originally are meant for the purposes of saying, of giving you an alphabetical list of uh, topics and saying from around that see this page. What I wanted to point out here is that if you separate it, you can create far more robust indexes because you can put the whole thing in alphabetical order, which means you don't even have to look in the back of the book. Right, it's already there. Uh, and, it, and on every specific topic can give you links to other uh, related topics, which is more powerful than a, than a regular index. But there's no problem. There's no, Use an index, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yes? How would you go about variable ways to play? Variable ways to play. Um, I would definitely put those in the... Uh, so the, the model that I presented was you have a learn to play and you have uh, a basic and advanced rule section. The variants I would just put in the, the second half, the advanced part of the learn to play. Separate section. Learn yeah, to play. yeah. That, that would be my recommendation for that. Anything in particular to role-playing games you want to mention? Particular to role-playing games. In role-playing games, it's going to be harder to do this than in board games. Board games, uh, and I think board games would probably benefit a little bit more from it. Um, role-playing games, um, where a lot of role-playing games fall down is in uh, they don't give a you know few-page rules synopsis in the beginning. Like, if you, if your player needs to read, you know, 20 or 30 pages to get the basic gist of what's going on, I think you've failed. Um, depending on the length of the game, the length of the game is really, as far as the length, I mean the length of the rulebook, you know, role-playing games, 
vary from whereas a Play time versus content. Yeah, so like a modern a modern board game, the rule books are usually going to be like you know twenty, thirty, maybe forty pages, and you know role playing game rule books can go up to three hundred pages or more. Um, so it becomes even more important in a case like that to make sure that all the critical stuff you need is right in the beginning. Um, I'm a little biased. I think that the fake core system does a really good job at giving you that, like, you know, I think it's like five pages maybe of the celebrated system. Sorry? And it's also pretty celebrated. There's a whole yes. thing broken down really tight. Right. Really tight. Um, so if you need a good example of uh, good robot design for a role playing game, I definitely suggest fake core. Um, the way that they do it is that they, they give you all the basics and then in the sidebars, um, they give you uh, page references for if you need more on that topic. So basically what it does <coughs> is uh, whenever you are going back to the rule book uh, and you're going through and refreshing yourself on the basics, you're just looking through a few pages and then the references to uh, topics in more depth are right there on the sidebars. You don't even have to go to the back to the index. Uh, so that's very useful for something as large as a role-playing game manual. I probably wouldn't suggest that for a board game. I think that you can write it in a way using a model like I presented where you don't need to have like four referen page references. But if you have one big role-playing game, um, uh, some a basic synopsis with some four references can do quite a lot. If it will Yes. Um, any specific fantasy flight titles that uh, you'd recommend checking out for the for rule books for good rule books? Yeah, for yeah. Um, Fury Dracula, absolutely. Um, Imperial Assault, and uh, well, those two will definitely get you started. Okay. Uh, yeah, any anything in the last year is just really really good. Okay, great. Thanks. Yes. Um, pretty much all my games are like under forty minutes. You know, ten minutes to teach. Very simple. Sure. Mm -hmm. I feel pretty certain I shouldn't have two rule books or an index. Yeah. So, uh, two rule books is probably overkill for you. Yeah. Um, I would honestly always recommend an index, really? even if it's a short one. I, I mean, how many pages do you think your rule book is? I mean, like right now, it's two pages front and back. Okay. If it's two pages, then then <laughs> yeah, then you probably don't need to worry about an index. Um, yeah, that becomes a case of uh, so so you so you have you have this game. Does it have so that uh, when it comes, do you have basic game or advanced game, or is it all one? Okay, then yeah, then it's totally fine to you, you don't need an index at that length, um, and you probably don't need to split it up either. Um, but I would strongly recommend uh, taking to heart um, basically what I gave in the second half of uh, making sure you're using the right sentence structure, making sure that you chunk concepts into little tiny bits, uh, making sure that you provide the graphics right next to where uh, you're explaining concepts, things like that. Um, do you have any examples of good like mini rule books? Mini rule books. Um, I mean, Roll for the Galaxy's rule book is pretty short. It's not four pages, but the core game, the core game might be four pages. Um, that will probably give you some good guidance on a, a very short rule book. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Any other questions? All right. Thanks so much for coming.